if you would find in your bulletin the summons to the word. It's taken from uh, Proverbs chapter 2. We'll read these words together to recognize the the significance, uh, to recognize the authority, if you will, of God's word. Um, That it is a word of, um, is a word that is final. It is a word that is wise. It is a word that is uh, has great hope, um, and is has a value, as, as the summons says here. Is a word. It is a hidden treasure. So let's read these words together from Proverbs two. If you call out for insight, if you cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as for silver, and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Well, these past weeks we've been doing a a series um, on the news media, and the majority of our time we have spent in the book of Revelation, Revelation 12 through 14. And uh, in in these chapters we have found that underlying so much conflict in our world, whether it's interpersonal conflict, whether it's political conflict, whatever it may be, that underlying the conflict of our day is a deeper conflict, a deeper warfare, a warfare that is, in many ways, um, has been there since, uh, since the beginning. It is a warfare between a woman, as Revelation speaks of, a woman and a dragon. It is, it is these symbols that picture a battle between life, between those, a community of people, those who seek to be a source of light and life to the world, and a mysterious, sinister force. I was presented here as a dragon, uh, presented elsewhere in chapter 12 as a serpent, as that one who is, who is ancient, known as the devil. And that underlying all of our interpersonal conflict, underlying so much of our, our struggle, is actually something deeper. And at first, that may seem absurd. It may seem like, what? That, that's just a bridge too far for me. That is just, I don't, I don't really buy your saying, oh, the devil is behind all this. But actually, you know, often when we, when we get into issues, when we actually wrestle with, say, marital conflict or familial conflict, when we wrestle with the conflict between a parent and a child, when we get into actually considering how deeply entrenched are the social and political issues of our day as we're seeing right now, uh, and, and just the, the polarization the protests, all that is happening, we recognize just how deep, right? How deeply entrenched, how deep-seated these issues are. And it seems like, why can't we figure this out? What is going on here? And, and the, the, the conflict seems so, so, so even, so sinister, so real, to the point where we wonder, is there, is there some sort of conspiracy going on here? What, what, is, what is going on here? Well, Revelation has an explanation. It speaks of this way that, in fact, there is something sinister. There are forces at play that are hidden underneath. In fact, the Apostle Paul, if I can just briefly take us from Revelation to, to Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, throughout chapter 5 and, and into chapter 6, he's talking about the household. He's talking about how families in the ancient world are to operate. He talks about relationship between husbands and wives and parents and children, slaves and masters. And then immediately after he's done that, he starts talking about spiritual warfare. Was he changing the topic? 
Or is he actually saying that underneath so much of the, the crisis of the family, the difficulties of marriage, is actually something deeper? So much to the point where Sarah and I, and I say this really only half-jokingly because it's actually very true, Sarah and I in our own marriage, we have often taken a verse from Ephesians 6 where, where, where Paul is talking about spiritual warfare. And he has this, this line where he reminds us it's so important. In fact, it's important for our marriages, it's important for our families, it's important for um, everything that's going on in the news today, all, the, all that we're wrestling with. Paul, the Apostle Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against the spouse. It's not against a family member. It's not against a neighbor. It's not against uh, a person of a different political uh, persuasion, different political party. That we human beings, no matter who we may be, no matter how evil we may be, no matter how, um, wherever we're coming, Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So he speaks here of a deeper conflict that, that draws the battle lines in whole new ways. In ways that, are, that require me, that require us to rethink the, where, where, where is the battle? With whom am I fighting and why? And Revelation, that's exactly what Revelation is doing. It's redrawing, if you will, the battle lines. And it's using symbols that are very powerful to, to help us understand the nature of the conflict. That it is a battle between life between a community that is all about giving light, you know, giving truth, declaring truth in that way that we just did just a few minutes ago, confessing our sin, beginning with inconvenient, costly truths about ourselves, and then speaking truth about God, about Jesus Christ, and about the world. It's about a woman who is emitting light, but also emitting life as she is, she's expecting, she cries out in pain, ready to give birth to one who is a son, one who will bring in a new order, an order of truth, an order of justice, an order of righteousness. She is, she is giving life at great cost to herself. That is a picture of who the church of Jesus Christ is, is to be, that we are to give life to others, life to our neighbor, often at great cost to ourselves. And, and it speaks, Revelation 12 speaks of this conflict, this battle, that in fact, in the wake of the birth of Jesus Christ, in the wake of that, this battle takes place. It is a legal battle in the courtroom of heaven where the evil one known as the accuser is thrown out, that he no longer has a case. The case against the woman who indeed is impure, who indeed is in every way no better than the rest of humanity, that she, through the blood of the Lamb, triumphs in battle, triumphs in the legal case because she has a substitute. The blood of the lamb has enabled her to triumph so that she can stand blameless, pure before God. And as a result, the accuser has no case. His case is thrown out. In fact, he himself is thrown out of the courtroom of heaven. He is thrown down to the earth where he continues, though defeated, he continues to deceive and last week we asked the question, how is it that he goes about his campaign of deception? And we got into chapter 13, and we, we talked about how the evil one continues to wage war through the institutions of our culture. In chapter 13, the, verse, the, the first 10 verses are all about how the evil one can hijack political power. 
And again, that was, that, was the, that was our sermon from last Sunday. And I, this Sunday, what I want to do is actually, instead of moving on, I want to read these verses from chapter 10 again. I'm sorry, from, sorry, these verses from chapter 13, the first 10 verses. And I want to take, I want to take it a little deeper. I want to apply um, this particular passage to our current Western context, to what would it look like, for example, for these verses to apply to a, a democracy today. So let me read these verses, and then we'll, that's, that's where, that's, that's the direction that we'll head in. Hear now the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns. And on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The, the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, last week, we asked the following question from this test. We asked the question, how does the dragon wage war? How does it wage its campaign of deception? And we answered the question this way, that he wages war in the midst of pandemonium. And we see this beast coming out of the sea. The sea is symbolic of, of chaos, of pandemonium, of uncertainty, of forces that are unfeeling, forces that are foreign to us. It's, this, it's, it's through the, the, the occasion, the opportunities, the situations of chaos in our culture that the evil one finds opportunity. And, and, and he uses those moments, those occasions of, of chaos, of pandemonium, to, to then use the promise of political power to heal all things. He looks to any sort of political power that claims to have a, a that pretends to be complete, that pretends to be final or absolute, and will hijack that political power to promise a salvation, to promise a solution, to promise a peace in the place of God 
Again and again, the evil one loves to hijack political power to promise that through it the, a, a, a new era will come. That all the ills of human society can in fact be solved through political means. So he wages war in the midst of pandemonium that arises in the midst of the sea comes this beast, of course, in the Old Testament, as we talked about last week, that the, the political power is regularly represented as a beast, as some sort of wild animal, as a predatorial creature. And this, this, this beast promises political power. It promises a, it pretends to have an ability to even heal itself. It has this messianic idea of almost dying, receiving a mortal wound, but then rising from the dead. That sounds very much like uh, the lamb that was slain. It promises peace, and yet it's, in truth, is predatorial and actually brings death not, um, and not life. Now listen, those of you who are kids, I mean, listen, how many of you kids are familiar with the story of the Exodus? Remember the story of the Exodus? Remember that God's people were in Egypt, right? They're in Egypt, and they're slaves. And, and of course, the, the king of Egypt is called a, a pharaoh. It's called a pharaoh. In fact, the, the, the word means uh, house, as in like the house of David. It means dynasty. And so the idea that, that the pharaoh's in charge, he's a king, and, he's, and he's, he's actually a very evil king, right? He's enslaved the, uh, he's enslaved the Israelites. And what's important to know, how many of you kids know this, that the pharaoh, maybe you've seen pictures of, of pharaohs in Egypt, maybe you've seen like the, the headdress of, of King Tut, right? Do you know what is on the very top of his headdress? There's, there's, there's an animal sticking out from, from the front. Do you know what it is, any of you kids? My kids are excluded here. Sorry, Winston, you can't answer. You already know this. Now, does anyone know what's in front? I'll give you a hint. It goes... Anyone want to guess? Yeah, a snake. It's a snake, right? It's a reptile. It's a dangerous reptile. See, the, the, the Egyptian pharaoh, they wanted everyone to know that you don't mess with the king of Egypt. You know why? Because he's sly. He's shrewd. He's deceptive. See, when you, the reason, one of the reasons snakes are so scary, of course, right, is that they slither in a way that you have no idea where they're going. And so the serpent in the ancient world, the snake in the ancient world, reptiles in general, were regarded as sinister, as deceptive. They were symbols of, of, of shrewdness in a positive way. That's what the Pharaoh was using. It. Like, you don't mess with me because I am like a servant. You can't predict me. You don't know what I'm going to do. And I got power. I am unpredictable, absolute power. And it was that symbol that, and, and for the, the way that Scripture pictures it, the way the Exodus pictures it, is behind the Pharaoh or all these gods of Egypt. Behind these gods is an evil one, a sinister one. And, and, and the Pharaoh very much represents this idea of the corruption and the hijacking of political power against the people of God. And that's why in very, at the very heart of the Exodus story is, um, is, this, is this event called the Passover. And, and kids, if you remember, what is, the, what is the animal that is used, right, to prevent the death angel from coming into your house? It's a lamb, right? It's a, la a little lamb. And of course, central to Revelation is what? Is whom? Jesus presented as, as, as what? As a lamb. He is the Passover lamb whose blood protects us from the just wrath of God in, uh, uh, over a world that is full of injustice, that is full of oppression. 
Okay, so what we're seeing here in Revelation 13 is the hijacking of political power. And, and I think that for you and me, we can look at, again, I mentioned this last week, we can look at Pharaoh and go, oh, yeah, man, that's, he's a beast. He's predatorial. I mean, he's, he's dangerous. Or we can look at, say, Hitler and go, oh, yeah, absolutely. Or we can look at, you know, the various, where it was Stalin or Mao Zedong, we can look at these leaders of these tyrannical totalitarian states, and we can say, yes, absolutely. In fact, I can remember, I was in, if you remember, in 1989, the Soviet Union collapsed, um, what we now speak of the former USSR. And I was, I was, at the time, I was 12 years old, 1989. And I, and I remember in that time, in, in the years immediately following uh, that, that, I had a, um, a grandfather figure in my life who, you're not going to believe this, this is an amazing thing that happened to me, it's an amazing blessing from the Lord, that uh, this grandfather figure was a friend, of our, a friend of our families. He would often take me to his cabin in the, the Montana, um, Montana Mountains, beautiful uh, areas in the Absorkies. It was called East Rosebud Lake. And he had a cabin there, and we would often go there. And I was, again, I was third, fourth, fifth grade. And one summer, uh, he came over for dinner, and he was... Uh, he was, he was a, sing, a single man all his life, and he was, uh, he was talking to my mom just before dinner, and he talked about how much he loved to travel and see the world, and he, but he didn't like uh, doing it alone. And I had to happen to be downstairs in my room, I think, and I was like terrorizing the cat or causing some sort of trouble. And my mom said, well, you could always take Bruce with you, just very, you know, sort of very sarcastically, like to get him out of the house or something like that. Well, the next summer, I was off to Egypt, with, uh, with this grandfather figure. He took me along, and for the very subsequent summers, we would go different places throughout the world. It was amazing. And one of those places that we went was, uh, was the former Soviet Union. We went to Moscow, went to some of the Eastern Bloc states. And while we were there touring, we're on the tour, going on this bus, I was reading um, the various dystopian uh, novels. So I think of like 1984 or Brave New World. And it was just amazing as a kid. Here I was, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years old, and I was reading these dystopian no- novels as I was touring, really, the, the, uh, the, the various areas that had been formerly uh, uh, you know, a totalitarian state. And so and you and I, the point there being that you and I, can, we, can get our, we, can, we can imagine, we can see what that's like to be, uh, to be how the various forms of government, of tyrannies, of uh, a despotism can be like the beast. But, but what, about, what about America? What about, what about democracy? And I, I alluded to it last week, but I want to talk about it more this morning. Let me, let me, let me share with you a quote from a, a, uh, from a professor at Notre Dame by the name of Patrick Deneen. This is from a book called Why Liberalism Failed. He says this, he says, in contrast to its crueler competitor ideologies, like, you know, like fascism or communism, he says liberalism, and again, when he uses the word liberalism, he's not speaking of liberals and Democrats. He's speaking of, of a Western concept of how we think about liberal democracy, how we think about the notion of human rights, of human choice, of human individuality is supreme. That's what we value, the individual choice. He says liberalism, defined as human choice, is more insidious in other words, it's, 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 more, it's more subtle than, say, these other forms of government that are more tyrannical. He says, as an, idea, as an ideology, liberalism pretends to be neutral. It pretends to be neutral. It denies any intention of shaping the souls under its rule. Liberalism ingratiates by inviting us 
to easy liberties, to diversions and attractions of freedom, pleasure, and wealth. See, what liberalism does is says, you do you. You be you. You get what you want. I mean, what? See, oh, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You, you, you decide what you should do. You live for yourself. You live for your wants. You live for your pleasures. See how deceptive, see how sly. And sooner than later, all of us are living accord. We're all enslaved to our own desires. And that's not freedom. That's not liberalism. It's not liberty. He, go, he continues, it makes itself invisible much like a computer's operating system going largely unseen until it crashes. It was just so ironic that this morning. It was, I think it was more than ironic. I think there was spiritual warfare. Literally, I got up this morning, and I went to turn on my laptop, this very laptop, and it just didn't start. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And your pastor uttered some four-letter words that won't, won't, won't be repeated here. And then I, I stopped, and I prayed, and I... I texted some of the leaders of the church, and I said, look, this just happened. Can you please pray? And like, like, literally like 10 minutes later, it fires up, and it's ready to go. So it's amazing how, how this stuff works. But anyway, but that's exactly the idea. A computer's operating system largely goes unseen until it crashes. That's exactly how liberalism works. Now this morning, again, I want to take a little bit of time here and dig deeper into the dangers of liberalism. Okay. I want to dig deeper into the ways that it actually is tyrannical, the ways that the evil one can hijack it in a way that is, um, that is actually, that summons us to find hope in the political power of democracy instead of the true power of, this, of the Spirit of God. So let me, let, me, let me start by this way. The point here is that I want to make, this is really important, is the bigger we make the self, the more central we make the self, the more central we will make the state. See, the whole point of listening to this is so important. The whole point of liberalism is to so give freedom to self that we erode any sort of human institutions, any sort of cultural institutions. Is your, is your family, are your parents holding you back? Get rid of them. It's your, your personal decisions. Is your local community holding you back? Are there, are there constraints? Are there any sort of traditions that are holding you back? Are there ways of being in the world about gender? Are there ways in the world about sexuality? Are there ways in the world that have any, any sort of telling you what to do, any ways of guiding you, any ways of constraining you? You need to get rid of those. And you do you. You do all on your own. And then there's no coincidence with that, that with the, the saturation of that message we are seeing today among our youth, among our college students and 20-somethings, an unprecedented amount of anxiety and depression because liberalism says hey it's all up to you and our young people are saying oh my goodness it's all up to me and it's so weighty never before have i seen a generation that is so longing for direction that is so longing for guidance there's like how do i do any of this See, once you remove all those norms, all the traditions, all of those things, again, Christianity does not deify tradition. Tradition is always ready to be critiqued by Scripture. It's not, we're not longing for the days of Ozzie and Harriet. That's not the point here at all. 
The point is to, is to say that we need traditions, we need culture, we need those, we need family, we need those institutions, and they need to be redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but those have to be there, because in their absence, you will have self, the absence of those institutions, and guess who? Big brother. The larger we, the larger, the, the more and more, the more, the, the bigger we make the self, the bigger we will make the state. The more we celebrate self, the more we will have to intensify and create a larger state system that is taking, that is basically acting as a parent. See, in the place of the comfort and the constraint of family and community and church come countless government programs. And again, listen to me, hear me say, government has a place. The Bible specifically states that it, it, it ordains, it institutes the, the, the whole form, the whole structure of government as an institution. So again, the absence of God, government is the most powerful instrument of cultural change. So I want to ask the question, how does one use government to do that? Well, Afro-American economist Thomas Sowell in his remarkable book, it's a remarkable book called The Vision of the Anointed. And in that book, Sowell, as an economist, challenges the assumptions of the American intelligentsia of the last 40 to 50 years. It's an intelligentsia that overwhelmingly looks to the government to be an agent of cultural change. See, we notice here in, the, in, in these verses how there's a sense of the world looking at the beast, looking at political power and saying, wow, who is like the beast? Who can bring about that sort of change? Who has the power to influence like government? And, and again, if you don't believe in God, that the government's your biggest agent. It's your largest agent. It's the, it is the instrument for cultural change. So I want to add, and so, so Sowell, in his book, he asked the question, how is government used to bring about cultural change? And he gives four steps. Are you ready for this? I think that means profound. He says, the intelligentsia uses the government to, to bring about cultural change with four steps. The first, create a big problem. Create a big, create a crisis. Stir up fear. Let everyone know how dangerous things are. We got a problem on our hands. Everyone needs to freak out. Create a problem. Second, call for a big plan. We need a plan to address this big problem. And it's not a plan that institutions, that people do privately. No, no, no. It's a plan that is actually needs to be a, a big program. That is a, a political, a policy program. Create a big problem. Call for a plan. Create a big program. And when, the, when, and when the program doesn't work, fourth, criticize any pushback. Criticize any pushback. Well, clearly it worked. You simply move the goalposts. And well, what are we seeing in our culture today? What are we seeing on the news today? Create a big problem. Call for a big plan. Call for a big program. Criticize any Pushback. Sol goes on to give um, three examples. I'm just he, call, he uses three examples. I won't go into them. First, he talks about the war and poverty. Second, he talks about sex education. Third, he talks about, very relevantly, criminal justice. I'm going to take just a moment to talk about criminal justice. The stated goal of, of, the, of the, 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 the programs and policies regarding criminal justice in the 1960s were to reduce crime. 
Now listen to this. In the 1960s, when, when policymakers and legal analysts wanted to reduce crime, you would think, okay, well, obviously there must have been a spike in crime. There must have been a, a, um, this, this sort of surge in the crime rate in America. But, but it's actually the opposite is true. Soul writes, the number of murders committed in the United States in 1960 was less than in 1950, which was less than in 1940, which was even less than in 1930. So in other words, over 30 years, you had a decline in the crime rate in America when suddenly there was this, this crisis about crime in America. The population had been growing all over those decades, and yet crime was decreasing. The murder rate in proportion to the population in 1960 was just under half of what it had been in 1934. Isn't that amazing? In fact, the problem wasn't with the criminals, said the intelligentsia. Actually, the problem was with the entire concept of punishment. It was regarded as vindictive, as irrational. Criminals needed therapy, not punishment. Criminals were unhealthy and needed to be made healthy. The result was that largely through, through the judicial decisions of the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Oral Warren, there was a revolution in criminal law. And the result, listen to this, the result was that crime rates skyrocketed. Let's go soft on crime. Let's talk, sit down and talk to the criminal. Now let's do a timeout. As Christians, you and I know that's exactly what we need to do. We need to sit down, love, and minister to, and listen to the criminal, and tell him the good news of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But to have him sit down in therapy, to sit and talk to him, to go soft on crime, to suggest that somehow the gospel doesn't speak of actual real consequences of sin. Absolutely it does. Again, the result was, was that the, the crime skyrocketed. The, mur the murder rate in 1974 was more than twice as high as in 1961. Between 1965 and 1976, the citizens' chances of becoming a victim of a major violent crime tripled. In 1953, the homicide rate was 4.8 out of 100,000, the lowest it had been in four decades. By 1991, the rate for murder and deliberate manslaughter alone went from 4.8, doubling to 9.8 per 100,000. And so this bears direct, direct impact on what we're talking about today. All that's in the news. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote you, I'm gonna quote to you Afro-American scholar Randall Kennedy. Randall Kennedy was a Rhodes Scholar. He's now a Harvard Law professor. And he states this, listen to this. Blacks have suffered more from being left unprotected or underprotected by law enforcement authorities than from being mistreated as suspects or as defendants. Although it is the allegations of the latter that now typically receive the most attention in news media. He wrote that in 1997. Isn't that amazing? He's saying, history. when you look at the relationship between law enforcement and the Afro-American community throughout the history of this nation, overwhelmingly, the tragedy is that they are underprotected, that they are unprotected, that the, the police just, just drive on by, so to speak, and ignore what's going on. He says, yes, there is police brutality. Absolutely, it's, it's heinous, it's evil. No one's for that. There needs to be better training. There needs to be an evaluation of, of the unions, the police officer, of, of the police unions that are going. Or even right now, you look at it and you think, man, how many, how many, how many, um, how many uh, inf infractions did this guy have? Right, this guy who the, the police officer Chauvin, who um, who um, 
was responsible for the death of George Floyd. You know, how many infractions? 18? Oh my goodness, think, why, why wasn't something done? Well, because often unions are there. They're there to like, make sure the police officers don't, don't, don't somehow get, you know, their, their career is not hurt in any way. And is there a place for unions? Absolutely. But what is that place? Are they serving their purpose? So listen, there is reason to protest. There's reason to be concerned about failures in our law enforcement. At the same time, let's also be sober here. Look at your field. Those of you who, whatever field you, you were in now or were in, is there, is there opportunity for serious, like, serious reform? Is there not abuse in the medical field? Is there not abuse? And you name it. I was, just, I was having a cigar with several friends of mine this past Thursday, and they were, one was a florer. He's, a, he's, a, he, he's, in, the, he's in flooring. And he was talking about all the, the, the ways that, um, that, that contractors and that the persons in his field are constantly cutting corners, laying flooring, cut, you know, cutting costs, etc., as ways of just, they're very unjust, very wrong, because it's happening all the time. I have a friend of mine who's in the insurance business. He talks about how, you know, people in insurance, all, I mean, you, if, if our fields, our particular fields, the field of pastoral ministry were subjected to the kind of scrutiny that law enforcement is right now, don't you think there might be a call for more than a few reforms? I mean, pastors can be lazy. They can be financially corrupt. We're no, we're not, we're not, we're no way better than any of you guys. And so, of course, there is a place for the need to address police brutality. But overwhelming this Afro-American professor of law at Harvard is saying, if you want to protest, if you want to be up in arms, if you want to protect, if you really think that black lives matter, understand, make no bones about it, that throughout the history of this nation, they have been unprotected, underprotected by law enforcement. And any notion that we should somehow defund the police. Very much, I, I was really encouraged this past, this past week, Democratic, uh, the, the presumed Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, he, he, in, in one of, the, in one of his, op, his op-ed pieces, he said, this notion of defunding the police is ridiculous. Okay, I think we're all in agreement now. Most of us. Right? This notion, we have to have the rule of law in this nation. But the point is this, that police officers like every other every other in every other vocation they will only be as good as the people who they are and who makes good people not governments it's the church of jesus christ when we are doing our job let me conclude with this think of the privilege that jesus had in his 30-some years on earth? Did he have money? Did he have a lot of money? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He had no money. Did he have political connections? Was he good friends with Herod? No. Herod wanted him dead. He and Pilate had that conversation go. He had no political connections. No money, no political connections. How educated? How many books did he publish? Not a single book. Not a single book. And yet he is, as we've talked about again and again in our summary of the law, he is the most influential figure in human history. He didn't have a large army. He didn't have a large bank account. 
He didn't have a great education, and he never wrote a book, and yet he changed our world forever. How? Through love. Through love. Brothers and sisters, when you love your family, you love your spouse, when you love your brothers and sisters in the Lord, when you sacrificially serve them, when you welcome them into your home, when you love your coworkers, when you pray for them, when you pray for our country, when you pray for those injustices, when you are a responsible citizen, when you do the things that Jesus calls you to do every day and you persevere in them, even though it's so hard, you struggle with work, you struggle with marriage, oh, it's so hard. You struggle parenting your children. You struggle. You stay. You stand fast in that struggle. You are, you are doing something that is deeply political, that has an impact on this country in a way that no politician can ever accomplish. Politicians are there. We need them to pass good, just laws, but they cannot change the hearts of our children. Do you see? So listen, let's ask ourselves, how am I using my time? How am I using my money? How am I using my body? How am I using my relationships with family and friends governed by this law of love? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just think, Father, we think our hearts break for all that is happening. Our hearts break for so many in this world, for so many in this country, Lord, whose lived experience is indeed one of, it feels so oppressive, feels so excluding, Brother, it feels so, um, so hopeless. Lord, we want to come alongside. We want to weep with those who weep. Father, and we want to offer words of true liberty, of true hope. Father, we pray for the victims of, of crime, of violent crime. We pray for the victims of police brutality and their families. But Father, we also pray for communities that are crying out for law enforcement, crying out for justice. We pray for small businesses who have been ruined or near the brink of ruin because of the rioting. Father, we pray for our own personal hearts that you would give us a faithfulness, a patient endurance that Revelation speaks of, that you would give us that, that sense that what we are doing has an import. It is no private matter, but it is a public, it is a political matter when we love others as we seek to create a community, a community of justice and righteousness, a community of hope, a community where all are valued and, and of equal worth. Oh, Lord God, please hear our cry. Make us as a church men and women of prayer, both privately and as we gather in small groups, as we gather each week. Father, please increase the size of our prayer team on Thursday morning so that we may cry out to you and that you may hear our cries and that you may answer that you, that justice may roll on like a river. Oh Lord God, hear our prayers, for we pray them in the name of the one who is both the, the, the lamb and the lion. Amen.